Uh, good morning, everyone. It's a blusterous day outside. Good morning. Okay. Hymn 455. 455 stands as one, two, and six. The royal banners forward go. The cross shows forth redemption's flow. Where he by whom our flesh was made, our ransom in his flesh has paid. Where deep for us the spear was dyed, life's torrent rushing from his side, to wash us in the precious flood, where flowed the water and the blood. To the eternal three in one, let homage meet by all be done. As by the cross thou dost restore, so guide and keep us evermore. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, your mercies are new every morning, and though we deserve only punishment, you receive us as your children and provide for all our needs of body and soul. Grant that we may heartily acknowledge your merciful goodness, give thanks for all your benefits, and serve you in willing obedience. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. The verse of the week is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark 12, 32b. Let's speak this together. There is one God, and there is no other but He. Yes. One, uh, actually we'll do it like this, one God and what is his identity, though there is one? Okay, yes, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, which is what? Trinity. There is one God... The one God is triune. There are three persons, but he is as one indivisible. 
That's really important that the Trinity is three persons, but that they are indivisible. This is why it's impossible to try and explain the Trinity without committing heresy, because anytime you try and explain it in, other, in any other way than just by saying it's three persons and one God, and that's a mystery that man cannot comprehend, you start uh, separating, like even St. Patrick's analogy of, well, it's a clover. It's, a clover has three leaves, uh, but it's all the same clover, one, two, three, just like the Trinity, there's three, but it's all one, except for in the clover, the three leaves are distinct leaves, they're all individuals. Or the other one, you see this, like that. Even that says, hey, wait a second, there's three circles that all do their own thing. If you want to draw this trinity in circles, it looks like this. One, two, three. Can you tell that there are three circles? No? Because they all, they all function in accord with the other. There is never a time when the trinity or a person of the trinity is functioning apart from the rest of the trinity which is one reason why when we talk about the crucifixion, we say God has died. Because the, he sent the Son to die, but every act is a, tr is a Trinitarian act. So when Jesus dies, it isn't just that the person of the Son dies, like, whoops, well, the clover lost its leaf, but don't worry, it'll grow a new one, and that's what the resurrection is. No, it's to say that uh, the entire thing died. God dies. Um, and he dies in the person of the Son who is flesh and blood. Okay? Um, so there is one God, and in that one God there is oneness. That one God is triune and within the Trinity is indivisible. And there is no other but he. No other. Which means false gods... are not gods. And they're not God. Um, there's really a lot of writing about this from some of the early church fathers because Christians were accused of what by the Roman government? One reason that they were killed. Heresy. Yes, heresy and a particular kind of heresy, perhaps the worst kind of heresy. Well, they didn't, they were not saying that their ruler was God, but there was a God. Sure, yes. Uh, pardon me? Didn't believe in God? Yes, which is called what? Uh, atheism. Yeah, so the worst, of, the worst of all heresies, atheism. So the Christians were tried and convicted and put to death under the charge of atheism in many instances because they didn't worship the gods of Rome. They worshipped uh, the one true God. And the Romans said, these are the gods. You made up a god. If you don't worship our gods, then that means you don't believe in them, and that's punishable. You are all atheists. Uh, and the early Christians who wrote 
uh, like the, uh, the Apologies and, uh, and things like that that were written. Uh, Augustine, St. Augustine talks about it in the City of God as well. Uh, Tertullian in his Apology writes about it. They address the charge of atheism and it's interesting to know what they say. They say, we cannot be considered atheists for not worshiping the gods of the Romans because the gods of the Romans aren't gods. How can we be considered atheists for not worshiping something that isn't a god? And they also go one step further, which is a step I'm going to take with you with this verse. There is no other. If false gods are not even lowercase c gods, what are they? They are something. They just aren't gods, and they're not God. Sure, like an idol, or like, uh, like the Church of Satan, which is alive and well in the United States, in case you didn't need any more reason to pray for the nation. Uh, pagan cults and sects, things like that. Any other god that is not the one true god. They are not gods, they are demons. That's what the early Christians said. We don't worship your gods because they aren't gods. If they were gods, we'd worship them because a god is worthy of being worshipped. Yours aren't gods. We ha there is only one god and we worship him. Yours aren't even gods, they're demons. You're a bunch of devil worshippers which puts a whole new perspective on the idea of a false god and a perspective on the idea of pride as being the desire to raise oneself up and to be likened unto God. Okay? There is no other but he. And to say this, there is no other but he, is to speak what name? Yes, but what is his name? Okay, but what is it? That's a title. His title is Messiah. What does he tell Moses from the burning bush? Moses says, who are you? They're going to ask me who sent me. I am. Now you see this. I keep saying, when, you say, when the Lord says, I am, it means that there isn't any other. If I am, no one else is. And anybody who lives, lives because I am. I am God. I am everything. For God to say, I am, is all-inclusive, and it is exclusive. Nobody else can be God because I am. So that is what ties in here. There is one God, and there is no other but He. That is the meaning of the Lord's name when he says, I am. If I am, no one else can be. Okay? Let's speak this again. There is one God, and there is no other but he. Yes. What is the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them 
serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Yes, we should fear and love God. Like with all of the explanations, it begins with your relationship with God, which is, uh, of course, as a reminder to you, since we're beginning now in the second table of the law, any transgression against the second table of the law is automatically a transgression of the first table. Because if you transgress against your neighbor, it means that you don't fear and love God, which means you've transgressed against the first commandment and all the others that come after it. Okay, so uh, your love and respect and reverence for and honor of your parents and those who are placed in positions of authority is not derived from the worth of those individuals. So kids, you don't love, honor, and respect your parents when or if your parents earn your respect. And adults, you don't love, honor, cherish, and pray for the President of the United States only if he earns your love, respect, and honor. Uh, chastisement comes in two forms. You love, respect, honor, and cherish your parents and those in authority because of the Lord. <coughs> You don't love them because they are who you are. Now, maybe you do love them because they are who they are, but the bottom line is you love them because of the Lord. You love them because you love the Lord. And you, you uh, have respect for, honor them, uh, so that you do not sin against them. And this is part of the explanation. When you confess your sins in the liturgy, you confess that you have sinned in Thought, word, and deed. That's encompassed here. Do not despise. To despise is a sin of the thought and a sin of the heart. To anger is a sin of word and of deed. So you are called not to sin in your own heart or mind and not to sin in any word or any action not to sin at all against your parents or uh, people in authority. But instead you're called to honor them, which is to esteem or hold them in high regard. You are called to serve and obey. And in this sense, you're called to serve and obey according to the law of the Lord. You're not called to serve and obey as if you are some kind of slave so that you know if mom and dad say, hey, I want you to go out and uh, sacrifice a goat to Satan, uh, you don't have to say, oh yes, I'll do that because, well, the fourth commandment says I'm supposed to honor and obey you, so whatever you say, no, uh, of course, and in, you know, in the uh, civil realm, this applies in that if anybody comes through the doors, if, if, if there ever reaches a time where a sheriff's deputy comes through the door and says, you're not allowed to say mass here, you're not allowed to have divine service, you're not allowed to preach the gospel, you're not allowed to have the Bible, we say, well, looks like you're going to have to take us all. Hope you have a prison cell big enough because this is a time when we don't obey you because we're obeying the Lord. So you obey insofar as you follow the law of the Lord. Okay? Not, it doesn't mean that you are made to be a slave by the fourth commandment. Oh, well, do what I say, because the fourth, fourth commandment says blah, 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 you better obey. No, love and cherish. Think the way that Christ thinks. 
look at those individuals the way that Christ looks at them and treat them accordingly. Not because of their merit, but because of their authority or their office as one that is given by Christ to someone who also is redeemed by Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, in all of your daily dealings, uh, deal with your neighbor and see him as one who also, like you, is redeemed by Christ. Bill. Morse's parents had two rules. Rule number one, parents are always right. Rule number two, when parents are wrong, refer to rule number one. <laughs> yes, see, and the issue is, when you get to be a teenager, or whatever age it is that you by right of human existence, all of a sudden know everything and begin challenging your parents in them being right about things, then the fourth commandment ends up becoming your worst nightmare because you can't do what you want to do and you can't do what satisfies that heart of yours so very much. I know, I speak from experience. <laughs> it was, there's always the balance of, do I say what I want to say to make a point and, and receive punishment or is the punishment too great and will it keep me in check? And the answer was never, punishment is too great, it'll keep me in check. Okay, kids. Yeah, obey your parents. <laughs> yes, it is. That's all I ever did, you know. I just offered constructive criticism. He said what? <laughs> oh my. The choir is singing in church, chanting the introit, so the congregation, you all get to chant the introit too. Um, and then they're singing the first distribution hymn. So don't be fooled because it's up on the board. You just listen for that first hymn. The kids are singing with the choir. Ooh, it sounds really good. We rehearsed it yes, uh, last week. Real, a really, really, really nice little thing. Okay. We are finally, we're talking about death and dying. And... Uh, this, <laughs> just so you realize what you're getting into with this, this four-page handout with 21 footnotes is the first two bullet points of the outline that I have. The first two. This is going to take a little while. And I assume longer even than I estimate because of my traditional pace, and I assume that you'll have questions along the way. So the handout is out by the, back by the door, by the bulletins, if you didn't get it. It says death and dying. It, it should look like this. I want to make a few things clear. This is a pretty big topic, bigger than I think maybe you realize at first. Uh, but as we start going through it, you will. 
there, is, there are a lot of facets to this. Um, you will for sure, if you haven't already, hear some things that maybe you haven't thought about before, or hear some things that maybe you haven't ever heard before, and for sure will have perhaps some of your popular opinions challenged going through this. And that's good. And as that happens, if you have a question, ask it. If you don't understand something, tell me and ask a question. If you think that I'm full of hot air, tell me. <laughs> push, push back. Because I don't go through only a little bit of preparation to teach things like this, and what you see on a handout is merely the tip of the iceberg. So if you don't understand something, ask. And my job is to study so that I can help you understand. If you, push, if you want to push back, do it. My job is to be able to present you something, and it, I'd be pretty bad at that if I didn't study enough to be able to um, address pushback. Okay, so, so do that if and when it happens. I have talked about some of this stuff already a little bit, so some of you already know some of the things that I'm talking about when I say that we maybe say things differently than you've heard them. You already kind of have a foretaste of, of what's going to be coming down the pipes. And that's okay. Um, part of it is because ultimately the church has no official doctrine about a lot of the teachings about death and dying. Uh, the main reason being, nobody who's died has come back to tell us everything about it. So the church and her theologians make the best decisions that they are able given what information they have. Some of it is speculation, some of it is scripture, None of it is uneducated. Um, so anything that I teach you, you can, as with any class, um, you can trust that uh, it's not something that I'm inventing on the spot and it's not something new that I teach. So it, what I teach has consensus through the church fathers and the, and the apostles and the teachings through the ages. That's a good thing, by the way, that there is consensus in what is taught. And it's a good thing you should be able to, you should be able to trust your pastor that he's going to study and be able to not, not teach you something new and novel. The, the fastest way to get to a heresy is to try and explain something in a brand new and novel way because then you're, <laughs> you're going down the tubes. Okay? My job is to repeat to you, to speak back, okay? Um, I don't want this to be a depressing thing because it's all about death. One of the reasons I want to spend the time, and, it's, and again, it'll take a while, I want to spend the time to talk about this is because we don't. 
When's the last time you had a very open and honest and blunt conversation about death? When's the last time you sat down with your kids and talked to your kids about death? Sure. Yeah, when they ask. Part of the issue is, and part of the reason why I think in the modern years, in the, in the 20th, but especially into the 21st century, there is, a, there is a lot of kind of common misconception about what the church actually thinks about death and dying and heaven and hell, hell especially. Hell is a big one. Um, almost nobody believes in hell anymore. And we'll get there another time. But there's a lot of misconceptions, and some of it stems from this idea that death is a frightening thing. And, and don't get me wrong, death certainly can be a frightening thing, uh, partly because of what, what is unknown about it. it is, death really is the great unknown of human existence. You can philosophize and talk about it all that you want, but at the end of the day, you're still jumping off a cliff into an abyss that you have never entered before. So it can, it can be a frightening thing. Um, but the fear of death should not trump a Christian's ability to discuss it. Um, it you know, it's, it's like, it's the same idea of uh, don't talk about religion or politics. And now we have Thanksgiving dinners where families get together and they can't even look at each other because somebody voted for Biden and somebody voted for Trump and now they all hate each other because for so long we've never been allowed to talk about it and now all of a sudden, because we never talked about it, we never voiced anything, we all hate each other. I'm not saying that's the only reason. I'm just using that as an example. And uh, it, within the church, um, there are topics like that too. Money. Money's a big thing. Money and tithing and alms and what you should and should not be doing with your money. Well, we never talk about that anymore. Why? Well, it's because it's between you and God, right? So the church shouldn't really talk about money or time or how you spend it. And we shouldn't tell you what you're supposed to be doing. Wrong! The Lord tells you what you should be doing, so the church has to. Um, and it is between you and God, anywhere between 10 and 100%. <laughs> hey, that's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. That's what I teach the midweek kids because, you know, in, the Lord says 10% and in Acts, they're giving away 100%. So he says, sure, whatever you want to give between 10 and 100%, that's 100% in between you and the Lord. Okay, but we, the church doesn't talk about money. We don't talk about tithing. We don't talk about alms. We don't talk about care for the poor. We don't talk about care for the members, the distribution of bread. How do we take care of our own people? The food pantry shouldn't be for our members. Nobody from here should ever be going to the food pantry because if they are, then we're not doing our job because we're supposed to be taking care of our own people. But nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about sex. Ooh, oh, no. Ooh, sex. Ooh. Sixth commandment. Adultery. Sex. Pornography. Oh, we can't talk about that because that's taboo now. It makes people uncomfortable. Oh, sure, it makes people uncomfortable. That doesn't mean we don't talk about it. Death. Well, we don't, we don't want to talk about that because if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. And then you are so ill-prepared. You are so ill-prepared to deal with any of it because the church has not done its job and the church hasn't talked about it. So, 
We ought to. We ought to bring death out into the light and shine a big old spotlight on it and talk about it. On your deathbed, you may, you, you may very well be afraid of death. And I will tell you on your deathbed exactly the same things that I will have told you for the entirety of your life. But until you get to the point where you are lying on your deathbed, starting to fade from, start, having your consciousness start to fade, you sh we should be talking about death, having it in the spotlight, so that when it comes, it's not a surprise, it's nothing that's overly frightening, that you have comfort. And if we don't ever talk about it, and it comes, you have nothing. So we have to. That's the other reason that I want to do this study. Actually, the primary reason. Because I want, because my job is to prepare you to die. If you were at Verlene Hall's funeral service, or if you heard the sermon, a little bit of the introduction for this class right now is going to be very familiar because this opening quote is actually the same quote I used in, in the homily. Um, as death awaits us every day, let us likewise expect it every day. How can you expect death every day if you never talk about it, if you bury it? You say, well, I know someday I'll die, but I don't want to think about it or talk about it right now. I just can't deal with that right now. How can you expect it every day if you run away from it every day? This is one reason why Ash Wednesday is such an important day, and one reason why my Ash Wednesday homily this year was what it was, talking about Ash Wednesday and the coronavirus. The fear that you're coming in contact with your own mortality for the first time, except you're not. Every Ash Wednesday you come in contact with your own mortality. The ash that hits your forehead is the same thing that you're going to turn into. The smell of that myrrh is the smell of the spice that someone's going to put on your stinky, rotting body so that it doesn't stink so badly when you die. That whole day is about death. That's your mortality. Remember, O oh man, that you are dust, and to dust thou shalt return. That's your mortality. But even above and beyond Ash Wednesday, confession, every time you come to confession is death. It's also resurrection. Every day is death, death to self, life in Christ. Every day expecting death, thinking about death, knowing that it's there. It doesn't affect how you live. You continue to live, but you know that it's coming in one way or another for young and for old. Um, death awaits us every day. Let us expect it every day. He who daily remembers that he will die is one who easily despises all worldly things. I love that. What does St. Paul say about earth? <coughs> Excuse me. What does St. Paul say about earthly goods? Sure, you can't take it with you. All the world's gain I count as loss. loss. It doesn't matter 
Worldly goods, gold and silver? What does Christ say about that stuff? He said, sell it all and follow me. Okay, sure, sell it all and follow me. What else does he say? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves come in and steal. The greenbacks aren't worth a whole lot when you're dead. Gold and silver will pass away. What is the world to me with all its vaunted pleasures? As the hymn writer says, nothing. The hymn writer, what is the world to me? Yeah, it's nothing. You despise all worldly things. Indeed, he who prepares himself for a happy death by a true and serious conversion, labors after sincere godliness, patiently endures adversity, and with heartfelt feeling burns with an ardent desire for eternal life. Is this your best life? No. No. Should you strive to make this your best life? No. What that doesn't mean is don't enjoy the life that you have. I mean, don't, you don't have to, well, Christmas, I'm not going to give out Christmas presents and I'm not going to receive any anymore because all worldly goods are lost. I don't care. I'm not going to see my family anymore. I'll give them up because they don't matter right now. You know, enjoy the life that you have. Your life is a gift from God here, but this isn't your best life. So don't try to make it what it isn't. I mean, look at, the, look at the world around you. What is science always trying to do? Prolong life. Prolong life. Oh, boy, we're going to cure all diseases because man is so big and great. Oh, boy, we're going to find out how to grow tissue so we don't have to have organ donors anymore because we can 3D print. You need a new heart? Let's go on down to the heart store. We'll 3D print you a heart. You can watch it, and then we'll just put it right in you. We'll keep you alive. That's going to be so great. Oh, all this titanium alloy, carbon fiber, all the bioengineer some new body parts for you. You'll be more machine than man by the time you hit 300, but it'll be worth it because you're still alive. <laughs> They're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to prolong life. How long can we get you to live? Maybe we'll find a cure for death. Wouldn't that be great? Because this is the best life. If you have trouble with your knee, go get a knee replacement. If you have trouble with your heart, go get a heart replacement. If you have a cold, go take some medicine. But don't... About go take medicine? Yeah, I mean that. If you have a headache, go take a couple ibuprofen. Take your headache away. No, if, if your hip hurts or your shoulder hurts or your knee hurts and they say, hey, you should probably get that replaced, go do it. Get it replaced. But if they tell you, hey, you know, if we go through this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and this you might live to be 110 years old. Oh, boy, look what we, all these advances. It's worth it to get your hip replaced, right, Daryl? Yeah, 
Is it worth it to go through this and 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 this to maybe be 110? No. <laughs> well, okay, there you go, I guess. But the point being, clinging to life here as if this is your best life. I mean, in some ways, that's really kind of depressing. Look at the world around you. Is this, is this really the best that it gets? Is this really where you want? Do you really want to live for 300 years here? As some genetically enhanced cyborg with carbon fiber body parts and a mechanical heart? Bruce. Uh, Pastor, is it wrong to pursue those options to extend our life? No. God knows where our times are going. So, with that being said, we have these options available for heart, lungs, whatever. Sure, yeah. But if we put our faith in God, I guess what I'm trying to say, is that wrong for us to say, well, I want to try and live forever, I want to have all these surgeries, and this and that, or should we just turn it over into the hands of God and accept yeah, it's a comp that's a complicated question. You've asked a lot there, and maybe you don't even realize how much you asked. Um, I'll try to address it in parts. One, should you just entrust it to God? Well, I mean, I love you, Bruce, so I'm not trying to be mean with this answer. I'm just trying to be kind of humorous. Should you entrust it to God? Duh! <laughs> yes! Hey, but, but, here's the, but here's the other part, okay? What does it mean to entrust it to God? That's the bigger question. Should you entrust your life to the Lord? Of course you should. But how do you do it, and what does it mean? If entrusting yourself to God means I've got a disease that could be taken away in an instant with readily available medicine, but I refuse to take the medicine because I say I'm, putting, I'm entrusting myself to God, I'm just going to pray for healing, and if I'm not healed, then I guess it wasn't the Lord's will that I would be healed, but I'll refuse to take any of that medicine. Is that entrusting yourself to God? Some argue yes. I argue no. Yeah, in fact, some years ago, I remember there was a news story because a little boy died because the family was, I think, Seventh-day Adventist, and they prayed for healing, and it was something that really was, it shouldn't have been a complication, it was something easily treatable, but they refused to see a doctor, they refused to have anybody come to the house, they refused to go to a hospital or have any kind of medicine or treatment done because, well, the Lord said he would provide healing, so we'll just wait for the Lord's healing. And there was a, I remember there being a big kerfuffle about that, and I don't remember if the parents were brought to court for negligence or not, but I know there was talk about it. So that's the question. Is that entrusting yourself to God? Because my argument is no. Why is my argument no? Because it's, it's okay, what did you say, Jim? Because he's made those things available through science and medical. Yes, he has made those things available, Bill. But you're tempting God, or, or challenging God, so to speak, 
in a way, you're asking God to work apart from a way that God has already told you that he's going to work. And how has God told you that he will work? Uh, <laughs> in mysterious ways. He does work in mysterious ways. But he works through... Yes, and what would we call that? Baptism is a means. Yes, that's the word. Yeah, woohoo. <laughs> Means. The Lord works through means. Because the Lord is a God of spirit and you are an animal of spirit and flesh. Which means the Lord's concrete interactions with you are never only of the flesh and never only of the spirit. Why is baptism the spirit and water? Because... Because it's something that is concrete and physical, and the Lord works through that. The Spirit and the Word are in that water, but it has, there has to be water there. Why is it bread and wine? Because it's a means. It is something that is concrete, something that interacts with you. So because we confess that the Lord works through means, and indeed the Lord has already said quite clearly he wants to work through means, here's a great example of it. Do you have a pastor? If you... <laughs> if you have a pastor... That is a proclamation that the Lord works through means. Because the Lord accomplishes work through that pastor. Again, I just can't tell you this enough. It isn't about me. It's not about the Reverend Eamon Ferguson. The fact that there's a picture of me and the guys who came before me on the wall doesn't matter. Because all, someday all of you will be dead and I will be dead and there are going to be people here that look at those pictures and they don't know who they are. And when I go to visit people who don't know me or people with Alzheimer's or dementia that have no idea who I am, it never offends me because I don't matter. This face doesn't matter. This is what matters. This stole is what matters. The office of the ministry is what matters. And that is the thing that matters because that is the office through which Christ works. It is Christ's proclamation of the gospel. It is Christ's word. It is Christ's hand. It is Christ's water in baptism. It is Christ's word. It is Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist. It is Christ's hands in holy absolution. It is Christ's words of absolution. Solution. The pastor is a means, and the Lord works through that means. The Lord has chosen to interact with you through means. The incarnation is the ultimate piece of evidence that points to that. That God takes on your flesh and blood so that he can interact with you in the most intimate of ways. 
The Lord works through means. So is it entrusting yourself to God to say, I'll just wait around and let God heal my stomach flu? Or is it entrusting yourself to God to say, God has given me the means to be able to treat this illness and to live in a life of relative comfort, so I should probably take some of that thermoflu or whatever I have. Or go to see the doctor if I'm not feeling well. Well, of course, go to see the doctor. There's nothing wrong with going to see the doctor. And I will also say this, there's nothing wrong with seeking to live a life to the, its fullest extent with the technology that is available to you, with the caveat being twofold. One, that the technology that you seek to use is not unethical technology, because there's a lot of that. There's a lot of we can, so we will, but we don't ask about should we do X, Y, and Z. There are a lot of moral and ethical ramifications for many treatments and many medical procedures uh, that are out there in the world today. Now, that doesn't mean that if you, you, know, you fall and break your leg, or you have knee trouble, and the doctor says, well, you should go in for surgery, or you should, get a, you should probably have your knee replaced um, to alleviate the discomfort and all that. You say, oh, no, the, the Lord will take care of me. He'll give me a new knee. Then the Lord says, I'm trying to give you a new knee right now. Oh, do you see that? So then the second caveat, Bruce, is this. Why do you seek to live a new life? Or why do you seek to live a longer life? Why are you seeking to preserve your life? What is your God? Because if your God is your life, then I say, don't go for those treatments. Because then you're worshiping at another altar, and then your own life has become idolatry, which is possible and happens very much. So you're saying the correct answer is to serve the Lord longer. Is that what you're saying? Sure, to serve the Lord longer. You want to be with your family longer? I mean, okay, there's... Well, sure. I mean, just you just make sure that when you're making that decision, you're. Well, I mean, I understand. I understand what you're I, asking. I always think I I don't want to die now because I want to see Hallie graduate, whatever. You know, I want to see my kids do things. Sure. The question is not do you want to live so that you can see. Of course, you're going to want to live to see things. You're going to want to live to do things. You're going to want to live longer so that you can stay with the people that you love. That's fine. The Lord loves those people too. The Lord wants you to love those people. He gave you those people to love. But the question is, and this, is, this happens especially with things like um, cancer diagnoses or um, diagnoses of rare and, and terminal conditions, where um, death is now presented to you, and like you have stage four cancer, it's in every organ of your body. There's only a couple things that we could try to do, and they are all experimental, and they all would be um, strange and bizarre, and they would use human stem cells from aborted fetuses and would do X, Y, and Z and might give you an extra six months of life. And then you say, do it all, whatever the cost, I want to live that extra six months. 
You're laughing, you're laughing, but that is not comedic. Because this is the kind of thing that happens a lot. And I think for people who have a finger in, or a finger to the pulse of the healthcare profession, um, have probably even seen it happen, where there are people who are so absolutely terrified of death that they create a god out of their own life. So that when death finally comes to face them, the god of their life is the one that they turn to. And this has nothing to do with getting a new hip or a new knee or a new shoulder or going to get a vaccine or X, Y, and Z. It has everything to do with trying to prolong your life beyond the limit that the Lord has given you. Does that make sense? And I'm not asking for myself, but um, (laughs) is it okay to want to live longer and make more money? (laughs) (laughs) Is it okay to want to live longer to make more money? If if your question is exactly what it sounds like, no. I want to live to be 100 years old so that I can continue uh, doing my investments because doggone it if I'm going to die and and only have a billion dollars instead of 10 billion dollars. Just remember, Bill, you can't take it. I can always count on you for levity in Bible class. That's good. I was asked that. <laughs> yeah, I would say that you may perhaps need to uh, evaluate your gods. If, that is, if your only motivation behind life is, ooh, got to keep on making money, got to keep on chugging along so I can keep on making that sweet, sweet moolah, then perhaps you have a different god. Uh, gods are... Gods are pernicious things. Everybody's got them. And it's real hard to get rid of them. And it seems like when you get rid of one, another one just kind of pops up. It's like you live a life of spiritual whack-a-mole. No matter how many moles you hit, there's another one that pops up. And it's kind of exhausting. If you were doing it all by yourself, it would be really a miserable thing. See, I always honestly felt like I was being selfish for wanting to live longer to see, you know, like things with your family. I don't think that that's a selfish thing. um, The Lord has given you life. The Lord has given you family. Should you seek to preserve the life that the Lord has given you? Sure. But should you seek to preserve that life in an idolatrous manner beyond the span of life that the Lord has given you? If the day comes, Marla, and you are diagnosed with stage 4 cancer of some sort that is just completely gone through your body, chemotherapy is not going to do anything, radiation is not going to do anything, and the only options left to you are horrific Uh, mutilating surgeries that may or may not work and if they do work have no guarantee to extend your life beyond maybe a year or two and even the year or two that you will live in addition to that your quality of life is going to be limited anyway. I mean at that point 
if you are chomping at the bit to undergo that kind of a procedure, rather than just saying, well, perhaps my time has come, then that is an opportunity to reflect upon whether you have made an idol out of life or not. But having pain in your hip to where you have to limp and going in to get a new hip so that you can continue to walk in an otherwise reasonably healthy body is not idolatrous. It's using a means for health uh, and life that the Lord has provided for you. And in that sense, it's a privilege to be able to do that. Yes? So the question was a jest. I know. Yeah, because <laughs> of the identical story of the, of the fellow that went to Jesus and he wanted to build more grain. Yes. Yeah, granaries to hold more grain, and, and Jesus told him, your soul will be required of you tonight. Yeah. yeah. So. Your grain's not going to be required of you. Your Benjamins aren't going to be required of you, but your soul will be. Yeah. What, yeah. Yes. We have several ladies that I know of that are over 100. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they would say, is it worth living this hundred plus waiting for the next birthday and so forth? I don't know what their health issues are, if they have any health issues. Mm -hmm. But they say, well, I wish I could have gone a long time ago. But uh, Yeah, that's another issue, because many of them do say, well, I wish that I could just give up my life. And then the question becomes, is it ethical or is it moral to give them what they want and put them out of their misery? Like you put old Fido out because he couldn't walk anymore. Take the dog to the vet, take grandma to the doctor, put them both down. <laughs> that was kind of a callous way to put it. Put them both in the oven and then you can have a little urn. Yeah. Yeah, well, but I can remember we would take my grandma to a tax appointment and that one year she went, I hope this is the last year I have to do this. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, Grandma? And she said, I hope I'm dead by this time next year. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to tell you, nothing against Larry Russell, but I hope every time I go to do taxes that that's the last one. <laughs> no, but I, un I understand. I mean... I and again, I mean, we haven't, look at this. This is how fast we're going through this study. We haven't even gotten halfway through the opening quote. It's a new record. But, I mean, this is what Gerhard says. Um, Heartfelt feeling burns with an ardent desire for eternal life. Preparing himself for happy death. You prepare yourself every day for death. Every day you know that death could come for you. You live your life knowing that it is a, it'll, a time will come when you are appointed to die, and it'll happen here or now. I mean, I say things all the time like, I sure wish that the Lord would come tomorrow. And what that means for me, I don't know. If it means that, if it means that I die and the Lord takes me, then so be it. If it means that the Lord comes with thunder and trumpets from heaven and appears before me while I'm still alive, then so be it. I'd love it. I'd love to exit this veil of tears. Doesn't mean I don't love the people that are here or, or want to spend time with them, because certainly I do. And I'm sure that your grandma would say the same thing. 
that it, it saying something like that isn't about, boy, I hate everybody's guts and I'm tired of, tired of looking at you. I'm tired of buying you those doggone Christmas presents every year. Good grief, Lord, just take me away from these people. You know? It's, it's not about that. It is, that kind of a desire comes from the understanding that this is a veil of tears. And there's much to be enjoyed in the veil of tears, but at the end of the day, it's still a veil of tears. And, um, but to this question, you know, the elderly woman who is still relatively healthy, but who's lost her husband, who is in a nursing home, has trouble getting around and walking. Well, what do you do? She doesn't want to live anymore. I usually say, I want to go where my husband is. And sure, yeah. I want to be with my husband. I'm tired of living. This, I'm saying this just because Samantha, and I'm sure Gail would agree, and probably Lindsay, but um, Samantha's a firm believer in quantity of life versus quality of life. Mm -hmm. You know? Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, whatever. Yes. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yeah. But if I asked, if I asked Samantha or Lindsay or Gail bluntly, would you administer a fatal dose of morphine to somebody because their quality of life was not what they wanted? Would, you, would they say yes? You are. Grandma is not your dog either. You take your dog to put your dog down, which is a sad thing if you loved your dog. Human emotions are a complicated batch of things. You can blubber like a big baby putting a dog down the same way that you would at a funeral for your best friend. And, um, but why do you take the dog, why do you take the dog to the vet to put the dog down to end the dog suffering, but you don't? for grandma. What's the difference? Okay, you're right. God creates life. God created the dog. Yeah, but I gotta draw the line somewhere. But who are you to draw the line? Okay, and what would we call that? Okay, yeah, you're a caretaker, but the, the theological term we say is you have dominion. The Lord has given you dominion over creation. So you have the option to be merciful to your dog when your dog is sick and, uh, and you can take your dog in and say, this, this is the end and I will end your suffering. However, you are not given dominion over your fellow man. You are not given dominion over your fellow man. And quality of life may be going down. And uh, I, I am no stranger to this being in my profession as well. There are certain signs that are fairly universal when people are coming to the end quality of life may go down. And as quality of life goes down, what do you do if you're in the medical field? 
What do you do for the person whose quality of life is diminishing? You comfort them. You don't take them to put them down, but you offer them the most comfort that you can so that as their quality goes down, which very often coincides with the quantity going down as well, you offer them the comfort that you can, which is another means, comfort of the body. You take care of them. Hospice is a wonderful resource because they take good care of people. They offer um, chaplains too. My uncle, uh, great uncle, he was an Episcopalian priest. He works as a hospice chaplain. Although I have to say, I think it takes a special kind of person to do that and I don't think that I could do it. It takes a very special, I can, I can be at gravesides and I can be at bedsides, but it is, it is the hardest thing to do, especially if it's one of my children. It is the absolute hardest thing in the world to do and I couldn't do it every day. I couldn't do it. It would destroy me. So I have a lot of respect for those chaplains because that is an incredibly difficult task. And um, they take good care of you, but it's comfort. You provide comfort. What is it? Palliative care? Is that? Yeah. You provide comfort. So, yes, I mean, I think the church would agree quality versus quantity too, but the church doesn't draw the line where we say, well, she was healthy now and now the quality is so bad, you better just put her out of your misery. Well, you know, take grandma out with old yeller behind the shed. <laughs> or, or, you know, say to the nurse, would you please give me a fatal dose of morphine or some other kind of, just put me out. And this is, I, the reason I bring this up is because, and we'll probably end up talking about this in a different module. This module, as you see, part one, is just talking about what death is. Um, we'll be talking about things like suicide and assisted suicide. That's a hot, that's a raging issue. I don't know how much you know about it, but states, there are a number of states that are legalizing this now. Even a teenager. And there, there was like an 18-year-old girl a couple years ago who, uh, who went into a clinic for assisted suicide because she was depressed. And they killed her. They gave her a fatal dose of morphine. An 18-year-old, an 18-year-old girl they killed. And in the Netherlands, if it's an old person, they don't have to offer their own consent. So if you lived in the Netherlands and your grandma you didn't think was doing well, which typically also ends up coinciding with the fact that they're a burden upon you, then you can just tell the doctors to ax grandma and the doctors will strap her down and, in, and administer a lethal injection. That's perfectly legal. This is, this is something that is happening in the world around you and in the country around you. This is, Look, look out for it. And those of you who are in the medical field, take care of your people. Don't kill them. To offer life and to offer death is the Lord's alone. Yes? There's another thing also. If you have a, a living will, it's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. But if you have stated that you do not want to be kept alive with the machines and everything. And yet your children, well, they would like to have mom around for a little while longer. Mm -hmm. 
that is it the doctor then that has to decide, okay, there's no there's no life, the woman is dead. Uh, we don't have time to answer that. Okay. That's that's a really, really hard question, and that's not one I don't think I can even give a general answer for. I think that's something that has to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis. There is a story, family, friends, this is the last thing before we go. Family, friends lost a son, both of their sons, actually. They were in a road trip, and uh, they crashed the car, and the one son died immediately, and the other son didn't. He survived, but was in bad shape. So they airlifted him to a hospital, and he was being kept alive on life support, but his brain had died, and his body was alive insofar as machines were enforcing the functions of his organs other than his brain. But if they took him off life support, I mean, he, he was gone. And he stayed on life support for, I think, for weeks. Because the parents couldn't agree and were still holding out hope that he would still be alive. And the thing that, I'm so, sorry to end on such a depressing note here, the thing that finally helped them make the decision was that he started to bloat and rot in a hospital bed because he was only being kept alive by a machine pumping things into his body. So at what point, at what point do you look at that and decide, we're going to pull the plug? How do you look at that and make a broad generalization? Hard cases make bad law. That's one of my fundamental principles of philosophy. Hard cases make bad law. There is no way to address that. Honestly, Nancy, there's, there's no way to answer that question because it is such a broad question for such an incredibly difficult and, dare I say, unique situation for every, every individual that enters into it. There's no one, one way to approach it. It's something that has to be handled individually. It, that is one of the largest gray areas of the life and death matter. There was a young lady with a situation like this, but it's too long to go into. Yeah. So anyway, we'll finish, we'll finish up the quote from Gerhard next week. <laughs>